You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. All right, good morning. Again, happy Father's Day. Again, today's a, a bittersweet day, but I, I want to say I'm thankful for my dad who's watching online from Florida. So give a shout out to him. Also grateful for my children this morning. Uh, they are who make me a father, and it is a blessing to be their dad. I'll say that there are things about God that I did not know or did not have it all figured out until I became a parent. And uh, definitely didn't realize some of the buttons that I have that they so quickly can push from all kinds of different angles unexpectedly. But I've grown in grace because of them. And again, I'm, I'm grateful to be a dad. Our passage today is a prayer to the Heavenly Father, but don't think that I'm like really smart and witty that I planned this out intentionally. That was the Holy Spirit's job. And so, um, but today we will be looking at a prayer to the Father. And so if you have your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll look at the ending passage in verses 14 to 21. And this morning I have uh, just the title of the sermon is Taste and See, which as we go through this, uh, you'll, you'll probably wonder, where did I get the idea of tasting and seeing from? We, we have sung about it now, and we, the song that we sang was based on Psalm 34, which is kind of the background of what I think Paul is getting at in this prayer. What he wants for us as believers is not just to know Jesus, but to actually experience him in our hearts, in our, in our deepest being. Uh, and so today we're wrapping up chapter 3, and really it serves as a transition. So in the first three chapters, Paul has been defining what a gospel-centered church uh, is. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he'll be describing what a gospel-centered church does. And so as we move forward, chapters 4 to chapter 6, there's going to be 39 imperatives given to us. So lots of things about what to do. But they're all based and centered and grounded in these theological discussions that we've been having in chapters 1 to 3. So let's look at uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. The Holy Spirit through Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit. And that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the essence of this passage of what, what Paul is praying is that, again, not that we would only know the love of God, but that we would also experience the love of God. And that as we experience the love of God, that it would mature us in our faith. And so I have up here a uh, little bottle of honey. Has anyone here this morning never actually tried just straight honey? Anyone just never tried straight honey, like just opened it up and poured it in your mouth? Everyone's done that here. That's, that's pretty impressive. All right. 
Uh, I remember growing up, I had never tasted honey, right? Um, just I tasted sugar, and I had heard that honey was sweet. But it's one thing to hear that honey is sweet. It's another thing to taste it, right? Does honey taste like sugar when you taste it? No, right? There's this depth of flavor. In fact, there's all kind of different honeys that you can get. You can get honeys where it has a little bit, a little bit of blueberry hint in it or other types of um, fruits or different things, right? That where the bees pollinate around different farms and different things. And so honey can have a depth of flavor, but you don't know what it really is. Even if you read up on it, you can Google it. You could find a book on honey. You could learn, you could go to a beehive and see honey being made. None of that matters until you actually taste honey. And so this is what uh, we sang this morning, but this is what sums up very well. David sums it up very well for us in Psalm 34. He says, taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? Now, when you hear that word happy, you think emotions. Actually, that word happy could be translated literally as flourishing. Flourishing is the one who is finding their refuge in the Lord, who is tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Notice he doesn't say know and see that the Lord is good. No, he says taste why knowledge is important, but that's until that knowledge melts our hearts and we experience the love of God, we will not be compelled to walk in obedience. We might live moral lives, but we won't live biblical lives. And so we won't be compelled to actually be matured in our faith. It's funny, this is what the author of Hebrews is writing to his audience for. And he, he, he begs them to get off milk and to mature, and to, and to eat meat. Similar to what Paul is getting at here. He wants us to be mature in our faith. So how does this happen then? Well, remember, Paul is really continuing his thoughts. So chapters 1 to 3 is really one long idea and thought that he is expressing before he gets to these imperatives and commands of what to do. So in chapters 1 to 2, uh, Paul made it very clear that he, he prayed that that God would open up our eyes to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Paul then reminds us of that power in chapter 2, where he described us before we came to Jesus, we were dead in our sins. Um, but God, who is rich in mercy, saved us by grace. We were alienated from God and from each other, and there was hostility between us and the Lord, and then between Jews and Gentile. But through the cross, all that hostility has been destroyed. In doing so, God has created this new community. And so believers are now citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's household, and we are living stones being built into a new temple. All of those, those images escalate in closeness, right? So the local church is supposed to be a body of close believers where we share our lives. You know, in a family, things are messy, right? You know each other's strengths and weaknesses. That's how Paul is describing the local church. And so after illustrating the power in chapter 2, after illustrating this power of God that, uh, that resides within us, that, that brought us from the dead and gave us life by grace, Paul begins to pray for his readers in chapter 3. This is what Matt uh, preached last week. And he, he starts to pray, and then he, he just gives a, a holy tangent, or he digresses. 
Because as he is mentioning that he is a prisoner of the Lord, he wants his readers to be encouraged, right? And so Paul prays again for his readers, but then he digresses, and then he begins to explain, look, it's okay that I'm a prisoner of this, because the mystery of God has been revealed. And what is the mystery of God? That Jews and Gentiles are coming together, yes, but, but that they come together by faith in the gospel. That's the mystery. And that this mystery, this gospel has been given to the church. What is God's plan to bring the hope of the gospel message to the world? It's the local church. That's the mystery. And so, again, we see the, the local church elevated in chapter 3. And so, um, Jesus, uh, sorry, Christ then love then, the love that Jesus has is so great it's so massive that it includes not only Jews and Gentiles, but it's so massive that Paul feels the need to go back to this prayer so that we would comprehend and experience this love in order to reach the fullness of God, in order to be matured. And so Paul prays that we would be strengthened by this power, this resurrection power, to know the surpassing power that is within us in which God is able to do even more than we can ask. So the point that we have first is that we must be desperate for God's power. We must be desperate for God's power. So verses 14 and 15, he says, For this reason, again, I kneel before the Father, for whom every family on heaven, in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul has this posture of humility as he prays for his readers. Why? Because he's reflecting on the gospel. And as you reflect on God's word, it, it should lead you to humility. And in fact, if it doesn't, go back and read it again. You, you've not read it right the first time. The gospel produces humility in our hearts. So prayer then is not like making a Christmas list. You ever been around children as they're making their Christmas lists? Right? So, I mean, growing up, what did it, what, how did I make a Christmas list? I opened up that big old thing called the Sears book. Now, some of you, you, you don't even know what Sears is. Some of you, you've never looked at a Sears book. But basically, uh, it's this big magazine where you flip through and you just circle, this is what I want for Christmas, right? Well, that's not what praying is like. Praying is not going to God saying, well, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this. No, prayer is worship. Our Father who art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. Prayer is worship. It's acknowledging that God is God, that he is sovereign and supreme as creator, and that he is near, and he desires to, to fellowship with us. And so Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Look at what the psalmist says in Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7. It says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and sheep of his hand. Kneeling is also, again, this just sign of desperation. When we know that only God can act on our behalf, it gives us this proper sense of what it means to be helpless. So Paul is desperate. He's desperate for his readers because he knows that we need the power of God in order to follow all these commands that he's about to give us. And he's about to give, again, 39 different commands. And he knows if we don't have the power of God, we will struggle and fail to obey those. So he's desperate. We must be then desperate for God's 
power. Look at Psalm 147.4. When we talk about the fact that it says, um, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. The fact that God names those in heaven and on earth just shows that he's a, he has authority. He has authority because he has created it all. The psalmist sums this up in Psalm 147.4. He says, he counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Now, go home and Google how many stars there are. Go home and Google how you can zoom out from the earth and just zoom out from the galaxy and then zoom out and just see how massive it all is. And the Bible says God has named it all. Why? Because he has authority. Why? Because he is creator. He is sovereign over all. But not just is God the creator and sovereign of all, when he sent his son, Jesus now has authority over all heaven and earth. He declares that after he is resurrected. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. He also commands us, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that shouldn't exasperate us. What that should do is encourage us. It should show us how desperate we are, but how merciful our God is. We must be desperate for God's power. Secondly, we must be transformed by God's power. That's the heart at what he's getting at, that we would be transformed by this resurrection power that is within us, that it would melt our hearts and literally transform the way that we live. So he says in verses 16 and 19, I pray that he may grant you according to his riches the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, width, height, depth, and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so notice he says, according to the riches of his glory. As he is praying this, he's not going to a God who is frugal or who is just making it by, right? He's going to a God who is rich in mercy. Literally, the Bible describes he lavishes his mercy and his grace on those who believe. So God is rich in mercy. We cannot exhaust his grace. It's not burden for him to give us grace. It's not burden for him to give us mercy. So Paul prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts, that the love of Christ, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that we would be filled with the fullness of God. Now what's interesting is Paul's already mentioned these things. These are not new prayer requests for Paul. He's mentioned them over in chapter 1 when he prayed for us at the end of chapter 1. He also, just throughout the New Testament, these things are, are very, very clear. So then why, why does Paul pray for things that we already have? Why does he encourage us to seek them? Because it's very possible to be a Christian but be hollow, to be inauthentic in our faith, to be very shallow in our understanding of what the gospel is. And Paul doesn't want that. He wants the gospel to transform our hearts, right? It's extremely possible for Christians to be hollow because what they know in their minds, they've not really experienced in their hearts. And so he doesn't ask God for anything concerning their circumstances, 
Because he knows if they understand this, if the gospel transforms their heart, it doesn't matter what circumstance they go through. They'll be okay. And so he says that you would be strengthened with the power in your inner being through his spirit. Now, as a society, we, we tend to focus on things of the, the outer being, right? And it's not any different than what was happening in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when Israel wanted a king, who did they look for? They looked for the tallest, strongest, you know, baddest warrior that they could find. His name was Saul, and they made him king. And how did it go? Terrible. He was a terrible king. But they looked on the outside. It's funny, when God then chose David to be king, what did he say about David? David was a man after God's own what? Heart. It was about his inside, right? His inner being that God cared for, not his outer appearance. Even though David was a good warrior, he was shorter, right? So props to the short guys, right? He was shorter. He wasn't tall like Saul, but he was a good warrior. But his heart was in the right place. That's what God cared for. Our society, we care for the outer things. But it's funny, Paul says, look, the outer things are going to fall away. It's the inner that we need to focus on. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, therefore, we don't give up even though our outer person is being destroyed. He's, he's describing the process of getting older, right? Amen? As we grow older, we fall apart, right? You'll hear that over and over and over again. You can't wait to be an adult, and then you can't you just always hope to be a kid again, right? Because as you get older, you just fall apart. So he says, therefore, don't, don't give up. Even though the outer person is wasting away, being destroyed, what? He says, our inner person is being renewed day by day by day. Spiritual, he's being renewed on the inside because what, what's happening is on the inside, his heart is being sensitive to the gospel. The Spirit, through your inner being, is enabling you to grasp the gospel in such a way that it actually grips you and changes you. And so all Christians know the gospel, but Paul wants it to grip us so that we're forever changed by the gospel message. So again, here's an illustration for you. Uh, nowadays, when we want to take a picture, we just pull out our, our smartphone and you know, the quality of the picture depends on the quality of your phone, but it also depends on the quality of the light in the room or the light outside. But it used to be when you wanted to take a picture, you had to pull out a camera that used film, right? For some of our younger pe people, this is beyond you, I know. But you had to use film, right? Well, if that film was a special rolled film that had chemicals on it, that when you would take a picture, what essentially is happening is the light goes through that film, and because the chemicals are on it, it imprints whatever image you take the picture of. So if you get film that wasn't treated with those chemicals, it didn't matter how good your light was inside or outside or how good you could you know, snap that picture, they wouldn't imprint on that film. It needed the chemicals to do it. To the, to the degree that you experience the Holy Spirit... When you're confronted with biblical truth, what should be happening is your heart should be imprinted by the scriptures, by the truth. You, you begin to feel the love of God literally changing your heart. You, you have comfort when it doesn't make sense. You have peace when you shouldn't have it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is gripping you and changing you and conforming you to the image of your son. You're becoming matured 
in your faith. And so it's impossible to know things about the Bible, to know things about Jesus, to know the gospel, but never really encounter them deep within our hearts because our hearts are just not sensitive to these things that we experience. But the gospel should be something that moves us. It, it compels us. It melts away the idols that my flesh so quickly go to. It changes us. It lifts us up. We walk then in newness of life. And so Paul prays that we would be strengthened in our inner being through the Holy Spirit. Then he says, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that word dwell literally means to take up residence. And so I don't know about you, but Joanna and I, we love to watch uh, HGTV, or we, we, we did. We really don't watch a whole lot of things anymore, but HGTV, and we would watch all these shows. Really, it's the same show, right? There's a, an old house that's been abandoned. They go in, and what do they do? They restore it, right? They fix it up, right? So there was a, the, you know, a popular one, Fixer Upper, right? The Chip and Joanna Gaines. And, and as they go in, they, they completely sometimes have to do everything, right? Everything has to be restored or fixed in some of these broken down houses. And even when we were younger, I remember going, I know why everyone likes these shows. Even though we don't acknowledge it, why everyone likes those shows is because that is the picture of what needs to happen to our hearts. Our hearts are broken down. Their, their sin has destroyed our hearts, and Jesus needs to come in and restore them. And the only way he does that is if he takes up residence within our hearts. So how does this dwelling then happen? How does Jesus come in and, and, and restore everything and then dwell there? Paul says it's by faith, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. By faith. Faith is the means in which this dwelling is obtained. So then the stronger faith that we have in Jesus and in, in his person and work and who he is, then the stronger the more we will see then the evidence that he is dwelling in our hearts and literally changing us over time. This is what Paul gets at when he writes to the Galatians. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says the, the famous verse, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. It is Christ who lives in me, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by what? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How does Christ dwell in our hearts? By faith. And as we have faith in Jesus and as we submit ourselves to his authority, to his lordship, to his word, he takes up residence. So next he prays, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love. Paul Paul prays that we would be transformed by the power of God that is demonstrated through the love of Jesus. And this love is the defining characteristic of the New Testament community. Love. But he uses the term rooted and grounded, which are agricultural and architectural terms used to describe this love. So like a tree that has roots that go deep down into the ground, and like the skyscrapers in Chicago or in New York that have foundations that go for stories upon stories into the ground so that they can withstand the elements. 
So too, the love of Christ is how believers then are empowered to love God and each other and to endure whatever life throws at us. So if, if you're rooted in love and grounded in love, if that becomes the firm foundation of your life, then it will permanently change the way you live. In fact, like the tree, if you're rooted deeply into the ground, you will produce fruit even though the season may be dry, even though the winds may be strong. You will produce fruit. Why? Because your, your roots go deep. And if your roots go deep, you won't... If they go deep in the gospel, what will happen is you, you just won't be as needy as a person because you'll see that your needs are met in Christ. You won't be afraid or have fear or be selfish or proud or self-absorbed. You will literally be transformed by the love of Christ such way that you have to then love others. So he says, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love. And then he goes, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. So notice, how are we transformed through this power? Notice he says that we may be able to comprehend with what? All the saints. Again, Paul emphasizes community in the book of Ephesians. Biblical community, the local church. If you want to know God deeply, you have to be active in a local church. That's not me saying it. That's Paul saying it. Literally, you can love Jesus and not be a part of the church, but not deeply. And we talked about how we, we actually need each other to draw each other out. We need biblical community to, to, to see blind spots we don't even know we have, to see idols that we don't even realize that we have and to share in life together. So a Christian not connected to the local church can know something of Jesus' love, but their grasp of that love is limited. It is shallow. They don't understand the length, width, height, and depth of God's love as expressed through all the saints. So what is the length of God's love? It, it, what Paul is saying is that God's love is for eternity. That's how long it is. God's love is for eternity. How wide is God's love? It's so wide that it includes both Jews and Gentiles, and essentially every tribe, every tongue, every nation. How high is God's love? It's so high that it reaches to heaven. We will be glorified and see Jesus face to face. How deep is God's love? It's so deep that even the most wicked sinner can be forgiven. Now, we don't even know how deep our own ocean is on this planet. We know that it's, it's so deep we can't explore it. It's so deep that it's actually deeper than how tall Mount Everest is. So if you can imagine, we can climb Mount Everest, which is the tallest point on the earth, but we can't go to the deepest part of the earth. But it is, the ocean represents a great metaphor for God's love, right? God's love is infinitely deep. Uh, and the ocean, again, is deeper than Mount Everest. And yet we can learn from it. We can be in all of it. We can still enjoy it. We can still explore it. We can discover more and more, but we'll never be able to explore the most deepest parts of the ocean. The gospel is infinitely deep. Without Jesus, though, it's just an abstraction. But to understand the depths of God's love is to understand the depths of what Jesus went to show you that love when he died on the cross. So Paul prays this again so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
the more we learn about this love, the more we are filled with the fullness of God. Again, Paul's reminded us that we are the temple of God being built up into his presence. And in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Ephesians 4.13, he's going to say that until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure and status of the fullness of Christ. So again, what does it mean to, to have experienced the fullness of God? It means to be mature in our faith. So we cannot be spiritually mature unless we see, receive God's power, which enables us to grasp the love of Jesus. Maturity doesn't mean just that we know things about the gospel. It doesn't mean that we even know theology or theological things. It doesn't mean that we read books or listen to sermons or, or that we're zealous for orthodoxy or that we're very moral. Again, to be mature in our faith is to be gripped by the gospel, to experience the love of Jesus more than just our mind in our hearts and be transformed by the power of God. So we must be transformed by God's power. Finally, we must be expectant of God's power. So often we uh, come to church and, and we just come, right, as consumers, and we're, we're happy to be here. We would look forward to seeing some folks and whatnot. But we actually don't come expecting God to do something because we just, we've forgotten the expectant power that is in the gospel, that's in the heavens. So he says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Again, he's wrapping up this section and he gives this doxology, praising the Lord that he is able to do far and more than we can even ask. Problem is we don't ask. We're afraid to go to the Lord because we just don't know who him for who he is as the Bible describes him. He actually yearns for you to come and pray. He is pleased to bring about his plan through the prayers of his saints. You want to see revival? You want to see things change? We, in humility, bow before our maker and beg him to do it. And he's pleased to hear us. He's pleased to do it. C.S. Lewis states, family, I have this quote up here for you. C.S. Lewis states in Mere Christianity, he says, if you aim at heaven... Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. In other words, look, if what you want and how your prayer life is described is, is just nothing, guess what? You're not even going to get nothing, right? But if you pray and ask God to move, not only will he answer you, he'll do far more than you can even think. And he's pleased to do that. But we need a vision for God that increases our faith in him so that we ask him to do the things that he says that he will do. We need a vision for God that increases our faith in his greatness. We should expect that he is a God who saves because that's what the Bible says that he does. We should expect that he is a God who heals because that's the, what the Bible says that he does. We should expect that he's a God who unites, who redeems, because that's who the Bible describes him as being. And yet we don't ask for these things, and we, we don't get it. But the Bible is how we grow our vision for who God is. So there's a famous verse in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. 
Again, I have it on the screen here for you. It says, without revelation, people run wild, but one who follows divine instruction will be happy. Now, if you have an older translation, definitely New King, New King James, it's going to be, without vision, people perish, right? And when, we, when you hear that word vision, you, you think of uh, strategic or tactical vision of what we should do, but actually that word vision really just means revelation, prophetic revelation. In other words, without the word of God, people perish. But notice what he says. Not only do they perish, that they run wild, which is the picture of what Israel did in uh, Exodus chapter 32 when they disobeyed. When Moses was on the mountain creating the commandments and then he heard the Lord say, uh, the people are going wild down there. You need to go down. And he goes down and it says the people were literally just running wild in their sin. Without Scripture, people won't run wild. But the one who follows divine instruction will be what? Again, you see that word happy. Another word would be blessed. But again, a better translation would be flourishing. So without the Bible, people run wild. But the one who follows divine instruction will flourish. That's what Paul is praying that we would be, people who flourish. And so we don't expect things from God because in our minds and hearts, he's just a little God who can't do things. He's our pocket God. We pull out when we need him, but then when we don't need him, we put him away. But when we read scripture, we are confronted with the fact of who God is, that he's awesome and I'm not. But we're also confronted with the fact that he is so good that he is willing to do great things through people like us. So when we read the Bible, the only hero in the Bible is Jesus. Everyone else is just like us. People who are sinners, who by faith are saved, who then God uses to do great things. God is pleased to use people who are not awesome to do awesome things. So you can go home and, and say, what did your pastor preach on Father's Day? He said, I'm not awesome, right? When we read the Bible, we hear from God. This is what we would say is devotion, right? When we read the Bible, we hear from God. But then we have to take what God says to us, and we have to speak it to ourselves, we have to speak the truth to ourselves as we meditate then on that, that scripture. So what does the scripture say? It says you are adopted as a son and daughter by the king of the universe. That is your identity. You say, but I fail so often. I just struggle. With so the Bible declares you are a son or daughter of the king if you have faith in Jesus. Stop living the lie of your past and stop, start walking in the truth of your identity. So again, I read the scripture that says, I'm adopted by the king. I then speak to myself and say, man, I don't, I don't feel worthy. I definitely don't feel adequate. I fail you all the time, but you say, I'm your son. And that you love me. And that you are pleased with me. Help me to walk in that today. And boy, I tell you what, trying to obey God, it totally changes, doesn't it? Because no longer am I trying to earn his favor. I'm just walking in the favor he's already given me. So we read the Bible to hear from God. Then we speak these truths to ourselves. We meditate on God, God's word. And then we pray back to God. And when we do so, we, we do so expectantly. That God hears our prayers. That he will move our hearts. And that he will accomplish his purposes. God is a God who saves. Who are you praying for that God would save. I remember praying for someone for 10 years. 
10 years that they would be saved. And I remember getting the news. It wasn't something that I had done, but just getting the news they had trusted Christ. God is a God who saves. Are we people who believe that and who are praying that God will save? When we get to the big idea, it's really, really simple. When the power of God's love grips you, it transforms you. When the power of God's love grips you, it transforms you. Again, like you, you might be thinking these changes that you want to see happen in your life, it's not outside of you, it's within you. And when the power of God's love grips you, it transforms who you are. You can trust him, even though things are uncertain. You can obey him, even though it's, it's costly. You can give sacrificially to his kingdom and his purposes because you know it's building up treasures in heaven. It transforms who you are. You're able to forgive because you realize the weight of what Christ has done to forgive your sins. You're able to reconcile and, and redeem relationships and aspects of your life all because the gospel transforms your heart. When the power of God's love grips you, it transforms you. Let's pray. Almighty King, we, we bow before you in our hearts today with just great gratitude for, for your word that we've studied so far through the book of Ephesians, with great gratitude for the salvation that it describes, for, for the power of the resurrection that resides in those who believe in Jesus. God, may we be transformed by this power. And Lord, for those who have known you in their mind but haven't just embraced you in their hearts, that they know things about you but they have not been transformed by your power. May your spirit not allow your word to return back void. In hearts that are dark, would you awaken them? In hearts that are weak, would you strengthen them? God, for your sake and for your glory, would you be pleased to move? Would you be pleased to save? God, on this uh, day of, again, celebrating fathers, we, we, we celebrate the fact that you are God who loves us so much that you would adopt us into your family, into your kingdom.